if you got some time. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Uh, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ uh, filled with the fruit of righteousness and co that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed pre preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Uh, thus reads the very living, breathing, and active word of God. May God write it upon our hearts. We preach as dying men to dying men. The Puritan Richard, Richard Baxter would often get into uh, debates with his fellow Puritan, fellow pastor, minister, uh, John Owen. Maybe some of you have heard that name. Uh, the two would correspond back and forth and extol the virtues of whether it is a limited atonement or a universal atonement. And although the two men differed in this theological point, and uh, we're not going to go into that tonight. Uh, Richard Baxter would be remembered as the man who taught pastors how to be a pastor. The Reformed 
pastor would be known as uh, the ministry to the minister, the pastor for pastors. And certainly it is a book, and it would be a book I commend uh, for all. I mean, most of you guys heard counseling. I heard youth. I heard addictions. I heard pastoral. I heard all these. I would commend all of you guys to work through and consider the calling and the work and the privilege it is to be a minister of Christ Jesus, whether you become you know, full-time employed somewhere or a layman. Uh, someone considering this calling and someone, uh, whether it be a full-time pastor, are all in need of refreshment. Baxter rightly focuses on the work of the pastor chiefly surrounding the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, there must be vitality to preaching. Uh, there must be an urgency to preaching. Uh, and so found in one of Baxter's poetic works, uh, his poetical fragments as he called them, uh, Baxter drops this powerful line considering the call that pastors champion and all Christians must follow. And he writes this. It's called me out to work while it was day and warn poor souls to turn without delay. Resolving speedily thy word to preach with Ambrose, I at once did learn and teach. Still thinking I had little time to live, my fervent heart to win men's soul did strive. I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. You can feel the, the tension, the pressure that Baxter is feeling. You can sense that there is no other higher endeavor. There is no other important activity. There is no other better calling than for a follower of Christ to engage and live and learn and teach gospel truths to others. To beg others to heed and repent and believe and be saved. Therefore, regardless of circumstance, uh, there is no fear. Uh, there is nothing that man can do, the world can do, uh, that stops the spread of the gospel. Uh, and the servants, uh, or the slaves of the gospel, uh, we hold on to this promise. So many men and women, godly men and women who have gone before us, understood every time... Uh, they stepped into a, t a pulpit or a teaching opportunity. Every time they were able to sit down with someone one-on-one -on -one with a cup of coffee, whatever it may be, they were able to herald the truth of Christ. Every time the words of life gushed forth from them as a fount of living water, it would bring life and refreshment to those who are being saved and would simultaneously also be an aroma of death. Uh, to those who are perishing. Every time this ministry of the gospel is engaged upon in faith, upon God and His Spirit, these men and these women um, knew that there is a sense in which this could be their last time, last opportunity, last chance, last privilege, uh, last hurrah. So you're saying source. we should always live like that? Is that what you're getting at? Sure. Uh, storming the gates of hell and proclaiming freedom to the captives they were able to do so one last time. And we trace this line of faithfulness all the way back to the Apostle Paul. And here Paul, with the same kind of boldness, spoke truth and love to those who would listen to him and others who refused to listen, they threw him in prison. And yet Paul's confidence uh, never waned, uh, never wavered. Rather, he expected 
deliverance, as he says. He expected vindication. He expected salvation from not just the final enemy, death, but also his present circumstances now. That the servants of the gospel will always be rescued as they have been rescued already by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul preaches without fear, with the very real reality that this might be his last. They preach, he preaches as dying man, as a dying man to dying men. Uh, Paul was the first of many preachers who adopted this mindset, but I want you to first examine this incredible confidence in the future Paul possesses. Paul carried this mindset into his grave. Therefore, erstwhile, in the time being, Paul had this incredible confidence knowing that he shall be saved. He shall be vindicated in the end, before his enemies, and ultimately before his God. And therefore, let us as well, as Alex said, uh, adopt and cultivate this mindset of expecting salvation and serving the body of Christ in the meantime, that for those of us who have been enraptured, captured by the loveliness of Christ, wooed by Him and His perfection, by His sacrifice, by His love, we have the confidence in expecting our deliverance, whether present or final, our deliverance is completely assured. And all we have to worry about is being faithful in the present. And so the text will break up tonight into just three aspects of Paul's mindset. First is Paul's assured deliverance. Paul's assured deliverance. We'll see that in verses 18 through 20. And second, we'll see Paul's unwavering response. In verses 21 through 24, Paul's unwavering response. And then finally, Paul's present ministry. Paul's present ministry in verses 25 and 26 and so let's look at we'll save we'll save questions to the end alec all right and so let's let's look at verse 18 it's just a the, your bibles break up this verse kind of interesting because the latter end the yes and i will rejoice start a new sentence and so we'll get a running head start and uh Start here. What then, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Uh, if the apostle John is the apostle of love, right? Uh, then the apostle Paul is the apostle of Joy, 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 joy. Don't worry, Zach, you got this. Uh, previously, Paul has explained to us that he will rejoice because his brothers and his opponents were preaching the gospel and because of their ministry, um, they were strengthened because Paul was imprisoned. Uh, but his reasons for joy do not end here. He's, he continues and he says, Paul is confident that regardless of what the circumstances may be, when his court decision arrives, he will be delivered. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Uh, this term delivered or deliverance is an interesting term. It is used um, simultaneously, interchangeably for salvation. Any, anyone take a Greek class? Anyone? Nobody? One, two? Okay, good luck, guys. Mr. <laughs> Professor Wayne's right there. Right there. Um, 
I'm on the hot seat too because uh, this term is interchangeable for salvation. It's soter from where we derive our modern theological term soteriology, uh, meaning Paul is confident that he will be saved out of his situation, this specific situation or in general. Uh, And I think Paul is deliberately being ambiguous here. He's not saying I'm going to be free from prison. I know that for a fact or I'm going to die. Uh, regardless of whether this be a bodily deliverance or a release from prison or a final deliverance of meeting Christ face to face, Paul rejoices as he is confident. Now let's look at the means by which this deliverance or this salvation occurs. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, This will turn out for my deliverance. Through the prayers of the Philippians and the provision of the Spirit of Christ, it continues the ambiguity, is because of these prayers, the people of the people, Paul is confident because he has a robust theology of prayer. He understands that prayer is efficacious. Prayer works. Prayer, as Pascal once says, that uh, it is as if God lends the dignity of causality to his creatures. You and I, when we participate in prayer, when we pray for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters, when we pray for a man like Pastor James Coates in Edmonton, you and I can both have the confidence that our prayer works, that he will be delivered, that he will be saved. Furthermore, Paul had this robust understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit vivifies. It means it makes alive the dead soul to Christ. And then with the newborn, born-again soul, the Spirit unites it to Christ. And therefore, the atonement of Christ on the cross is complete. And so the justification of God upon the unworthy sinner is pure and true. That it is truly just truly right for God to declare the sinner righteous because they have been united to Christ and his righteousness. It is right for God to do that. And therefore, Paul says, I will rejoice. Paul will rejoice because he is safe. As Paul lives and abides in the word and the will of God, there is nothing that can snatch him out of the protective, strong hands of his heavenly father. Paul, the suffering servant for Christ, follows in the path steps of his master, the true suffering servant. Last, I want to draw your attention to another passage of Scripture that I think gives another dimension to Paul's words. As many of you know who Paul is, formerly known as Saul, uh, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. If you stick around long enough, when we get to chapter 3, if we get to chapter 3, Uh, Paul says he was advancing greatly in Judaism, that he was the top student. He was the valedictorian of of his class. Um, And then he says, I count everything as loss. But I would say, and I would surmise, that Paul clearly knew his Old Testament. And so he clearly identifies his situation to a similar situation to one uh, one of the patriarchs of the faith. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. Book of Job. Um, This is an incredible, incredible book. Uh, Don't, I would encourage every 
one of you guys to slowly work through this book. I know it's only, sorry, it's 42 chapters long and it feels repetitive sometimes. And sometimes you do not know what these guys are talking about. But I would slowly work through the book, meditate on it, chew through it as a good piece of steak, whatever. I turn to uh, the book of Job, chapter 13. Chapter 13. And here, Job is working through cycle after cycle of bad argument after bad argument from whether they're really helpful friends or not. That's up for the reader to decide. Um, but look at Job chapter 13, and we'll get a running head start in verse 12. Verse 12 says, your maxims your, are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay, referring to his friends and their words. Job says in verse 13, let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Meaning, why should I be the master of my own soul when, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation. That the godless shall not come before him. Job was a man who was put to the test by God and never once did he accuse God for his circumstances, but through the constant unhelpful barrages of untimely advice of his friends, Job's faith did wane. Uh, Job stood firm, however, as this text, as that text showed us that Job stood firm on his eternal standing before God. That through all physical circumstances that God brought before him, though God may slay him, Shane and Shane song, um, Job losing all of his possessions, all 10 of his children, Job hoped in future salvation. And so Paul, with probably the same pathos as Job, stared at his future in chains. Uh, Paul knew that what he faced was certainly death, probably. His expectation is not so much the fear that people feel when they consider death, but rather his hope and his prayer, therefore, was the expectation of his own future, that his master, his savior Jesus, would be exalted. COVID-19, COVID, I'm tired of hearing that, but COVID has stirred the world uh, to some degree to the reality of death again, we would all agree. Mm. And whenever the thought of death enters the world's mind, it will certainly seek and find other avenues and outlets to try to replace or reject the thought of death, to numb itself to it. However, yeah. Paul... Paul was a man completely sold to his master. He relished in the thought as he thought about deliverance and the possibility of release. He was more concerned that what? Christ would be exalted. That Christ would be made more glorious, more winsome, more appealing in his life now and the next. And Paul then was hopeful. He was hopeful in the fact that he was uh, 
He wasn't going to escape the possibility of death, but he was hopeful that in death, Jesus is exalted. And that Paul would be brought into this never-ending, comforting presence of his Savior. So with that confidence and hope, Paul knew that his deliverance would be assured. There is nothing to fear. You and I are scared of so many things, right? We are scared of people, we, the fear of man. We are scared of commitment, the fear of accountability. We're scared of death, the fear of the unknown. All these fears, all these things stem from ultimately a lack of joy in Christ that stems from faith as Paul traced back for us. Therefore, when we fear these things, confidence can never arise. Boldness can never take shape in our lives because ultimately, we don't think of death enough. We don't think of heaven enough. A gaze into heaven is better than ten gazes on earth. So let us walk this Christian life with the same mindset as Paul and Job, that though the Lord of heaven may slay me though he brings me through circumstance we circumstances we never asked for uh, we know that uh, we would not be put to shame because it is the same god who carries us through these circumstances for the exaltation of his son in and through us and that brings us to verse 21 and this is Life verse, theme verse, whatever you like to call it, but simply it's just his unwavering resolve. Paul's unwavering resolve. Imagine reading all of this. Imagine reading verses 20 and 21 in the Philippine church. Your beloved pastor is set on staring down the looming face of death by the hands of the Romans. What emotions would you feel? I can imagine some of the Philippians pleading Paul to hang on and fight as long as possible, appeal to Caesar, go through the process, whatever. But for Paul, it wasn't about that. For Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, meaning anything and everything is devoted to Christ. There is not a single hint of self-advancement here. There is never a co-opting of personal selfish ambition with godly ministry. To Paul, to live is Christ. There are so many of you, I am sure, I am confident, so many of you entered this school considering going into some form of ministry, whether that be a pastor, a youth pastor, a counselor, a therapist, whatever. But let this verse punch you in the face and consider as you live, as I live, do I truly live Christ? Live Christ. Everything I do is done for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Everything I say is for the edification of all men. Everything I think is for the glory of Christ and Christ alone. Resolve yourself then. Resolve yourself like Jonathan Edwards did when he was your age, 19 and 20, as he considered the Christian life and he wrote these resolutions. Resolve yourself like Paul to live Christ. You see, when only when that first part 
is true. For to me, to live is Christ. Only when that first part of verse 21 is true, can you truly say to die is gain? Because when you die, you are immediately chastened into the presence and glory of the one you have lived for your entire life. Therefore, the race is complete. You have finished. You can rest now. Being face to face is that enduring rest that abides forever. There's no more striving. There's no more wrestling with the flesh. As a dying man, you have died and entered into life. Life, life, eternal life, as the pilgrim Christian cried as he ran away from his former way of life. And Paul pulls himself back, and he clarifies to this concerned congregation. He knows that the timing of his death is not his choosing. Uh, that is dependent upon his God. Therefore, he leaves the details that he can never know to his heavenly father. For him, he is resolved to live for Christ. He is resolved to engage in work or labor that produces fruit. And notice that small tinge, small hint of embarrassment in Paul's tone here. Uh, He says, if I am to live in the flesh, in verse 22, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Uh, I am hard-pressed between the two. Um, He does not know which to choose, living for Christ or dying and entering into glory. Uh, Literally, Paul feels the tension of the pole of two different directions, and he clearly prefers death. I hope you guys see that. Paul prefers glory. Paul prefers the everlasting joy of being with his Savior, Jesus. He says that that is much better. It is more preferable. It is more objectively the better option between the two. I hope that is an amen to you. However, notice how Paul does not solely think for himself here. Notice how he takes into consideration as he'll go into just a couple verses from now, the needs of others. Notice the language that Paul uses here to describe staying and ministering uh, and preaching the gospel. He says to stay in the flesh, there are real obvious references to this present sinful fleshly state that both you and I and Paul are very familiar with. Paul chooses to stay. Paul chooses to stay, and so, so do we. We seek to obey Christ. We seek to love Him more and better than we do currently, but our flesh gets in the way. I love how he says, remain in the flesh, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Oftentimes I hear Christians, so many Christians, blame so many things for their immaturity, uh, their lack of boldness in faith. They, they blame their circumstances. They blame the world. They, uh, they, the most common one I hear, the godly answer, is they blame Satan. Uh, but how often do you humble yourself and blame yourself and blame that it is your flesh? You, you are the reason for your misery. That you are so, you are the sole reason why you are so ineffective in your discipleship and your evangelism, why your worship feels 
so much like going through the motions or to borrow how Jesus puts it, why your love can oftentimes be so lukewarm. It is because you are still in your flesh. We are still in our flesh. We are still on that process, that long road of sanctification. And to be honest, friends, we wrestle and we still you know, live in our immaturity because simply uh, we do not mortify our flesh as we ought to. Either we coddle, we coddle our sins. Uh, we don't count others. We don't practice counting others more significant than ourselves. Uh, we only serve. You only serve when it's convenient for you. You cancel appointments because something else better comes up that suits your fancy. You decide not to fellowship after church because it's more comfortable and easy to just go home right afterwards. All of these things arise from your flesh. So therefore, Paul understands the difficulty of staying in this world. Objectively, he knew that when he is ushered into the presence of Christ Jesus, the problem of indwelling, remaining sin of the flesh will no longer remain. But for Paul, uh, Paul mortifies his flesh. He buffets his body, he says. He engages in self-discipline so that he may be fruitful. Be fruitful. He may be self-controlled, which is the fruit of the Spirit that grounds all other previous fruits. Therefore, Paul is resolved to stay in the flesh for the sake of others. Uh, I don't think there's any better sign of maturity here. That is a life that has devoted itself uh, to the killing of personal sin and the loving of others. That, those are the final stages of the Christian life. When you look at those old saints, those models, those disciples, those mentors you have, that is what makes them so attractive, so glorious, because at those final stages, those older saints, those matured saints look so much like Christ. Are you mortifying your flesh so that you can genuine say, genuinely say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Do you have a desire to serve people and be faithful for however long God has you here on this earth that desperately needs to hear and know what you know and what you have believed? And that is Paul's present unwavering resolve. What he will do now before he meets his Savior. And he says, I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so Paul here describes his present ministry. And we'll conclude with this in verses 25 and 26. Paul says he is convinced of this. He is convinced that although his decision to remain on this earth is not the most objectively optimal for his own personal worship and his own personal fellowship with Jesus, Paul is convinced that he will not waste 
this opportunity. Paul's present ministry will be for the sake of the church, that there are younger believers that need to see Paul's faith and imitate him as he imitates Christ. Paul is convinced further that this deliverance, as we saw in verse 19 and 20, can be a physical deliverance. And that will be used for the benefit of these believers. And so he will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith. Paul will continue to engage himself in the present ministry God has granted him to participate in. Paul will continue and remain and minister. He will teach the congregation. He will admonish the unruly. He will strengthen the weak. He will shepherd the flock of God. He will preach the word. And at the end of it all, he will behold the progress. The progress of these believers. Uh, So that, again, that term appears again. It will turn out for both Paul and the church's joy. Both parties' joy. Paul wraps up this section with the end result of this, his continuing ministry, that the confidence of, that the church had for Paul, one of support and love for a pastor. They gathered a collection and sent out some representatives to help pay for his needs, to feed him. Um, that confidence that they had in the man Paul would then turn into or abound and grow into a confidence in Christ Jesus. As Paul takes the spotlight off himself and he reminds the church that any deliverance will be from Christ and for Christ alone. When Paul returns to the Philippian church, it will be because Christ delivered him. Christ saved him. As Christ has saved him in the past, Christ will save him again in the future. Paul preaches and Paul writes as a dying man to dying men. There is always a sense of urgency in Paul's words. And the only, only kind of point of application I want you to consider tonight is do you possess the same kind of urgency? Do you live every day considering that it may be your last? Do you buy up the time and apply yourself to your studies, to your work, to your service, to your love, to the mortifying of your sin, uh, to the end that the kingdom of God may be strengthened, that her people may be edified, And Christ would ultimately be glorified. When you live like that, then truly, I think truly you can say with Paul, uh, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father God, we know for a fact that although Philippians 1.21 sounds so appealing to us that some of us may even go to lengths to have it tattooed on our arm. Uh, Truly, God, it is by your strength and your grace alone that any part of that verse could be true. That your son came to live the life we could not live, to live a life for Christ and died to gain the souls of all who would come to believe in him. So, Lord, may we be men and women of faith and men and women of urgency, that we would engage in fruitful, meaningful labor to the ends of the advancement of your kingdom now, and so that when we do 
meet your son face to face, Lord. Uh, truly, uh, truly we, find, we can find uh, everlasting rest in him. Help us to do so, Lord, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name.